Uh, quick question, since you brought up Seinfeld. Uh, does anyone know the Seinfeld connection for this movie? Seinfeld connection. Uh, no, still don't. That's okay, because I'm here, and I will let you know. Good thing. Good thing you're here, Colin. Thank you. Thank God I'm here. You asshole. Hey everybody, welcome to the DMC Movie Podcast. DMC stands for Dave, Marks, and Colin. All right, well, today's going to be an interesting day, guys, because uh, we are going to have a lively discussion, I'm sure, because the movie we're here to talk about is one of my top 20 films of all time, and Marcus is just going to find some reason to try and tear it down and shit on it, so I'm looking forward to a lively conversation. How about you guys? I'm here for you, Dave. I'll do what I can. I'm not going to shit all over this movie, but I'm ready for the action. I've got my popcorn, and I really want to see you guys square off. <laughs> well, my, my deflector shields are at 100%, Marcus, uh, and anything that you say about this movie is just going to bounce right off. So I have my own opinions, and they're rooted in me forever, and they're not going to change. We'll see. Although I did have, a, I will say that I, I noticed a couple things that we can talk about on the rewatch. There are a few minor problems here and there, and I'm sure you have a long list of what you'd like to discuss. Not that long. I think my what I dislike about it might be what you like about it, so we might just be uh, diametrically opposed. Well, that wouldn't right. be anything new for you, Marcus. <laughs> you contrarian. All right, so uh, before we jump into the movie, we did receive some listener feedback, and we actually received it in the form of an audio message that came in through Spotify. Hey, guys. It's me, your favorite number one fan. Jamie up in Hillsboro, Oregon. You guys are awesome. Listening to um, Close Encounters. Just wanted to say, Dave, you're wrong. Colin, you're right. Marcus, you're just Marcus, and I love you. Can't believe you made me agree with Colin, but I do. Close Encounters. A great movie. Come on. You're understating how good this movie is. And uh, I love you all. I will admit that as I was editing the Close Encounters pod, I had to go back and rewatch several sections of the movie again and again. And quite honestly, my opinion of the film actually improved during the editing process. I think I gave it a, a very precise 86.5, and I think I'm, I'm willing to bump that up to an 88.93% in terms of my overall grade <laughs> in the film. B but plus. it's still a solid B+, plus, <laughs> possibly an A-. minus. We did receive some feedback from Bill Tiller, who was a contributor on our Halloween podcast. He actually has a lot of things he would like to say about it. So we might come back and do a Close Encounters part two or just some follow up because he also has some inside dirt on the production of the film and wanted to share his opinions. That could be fun. So possibly we'll reach out to Bill. Do you know Bill's overall opinion of the movie? I mean, does he also think that you're an idiot? <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> I mean, he does. It may, or may, it may or may not be related to the movie, <laughs> but... He worked with a couple of people who worked on the film. So Hal Barwood, who I mentioned, uh, you know, they worked together at LucasArts and Bill knew him fairly well. And so Hal Barwood gave him a bunch of inside information as to who wrote the script and who came up with this idea and what, you know, what Spielberg did versus somebody else. And so he told me a couple of interesting stories. And so it might be worth a follow on conversation. Got it. Yeah, but he's otherwise, I think he's a big fan of the film. Uh, and again, yes, I'm all the way out of my island with my whopping 88% score for the movie, which is just damning, right? It's just horribly critical. It's Don't forget a, that point It's five. a solid B+. Well, you know, like if you if you actually listen to the podcast, you'd probably think you, you gave it like a 68. But, you know. <laughs> Dude, 
You know, I, so actually one thing <laughs> that I will say is that the thing might be my Close Encounters. There's a lot of parallels there. Close Encounters was really resonated with you, I think, because of when you saw it and your connection with your dad and the score music and all that kind of stuff. So there's an emotional connection for you. And I certainly at least have not that type of connection to the thing, <laughs> but I do think the when you saw it really matters and how you saw it really matters. And my whole history of growing up a horror dork is actually certainly in play there. And so I'll, I'll go into that a little okay, bit. Okay, well, I, I hate to burst your bubble. I'm not a horror dork, but I really love this movie, so... I'm counting on you to be on my side, dude. I will be. Just, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't okay. worry. I'm there. I got you. Mark and I need to figure out a movie that we can gang up on against you. Babette's Feast. <laughs> 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 I don't think I'd make it through it. But listeners, if you would like to leave us a voice message like Jamie just did, go to realdmc.com and you'll be redirected to the page on Spotify. And at the top, there is a send voice message. So please, you might be featured in this spot right now. Dare to dream. <laughs> All right, well, moving on to today's movie. Uh, so today we're here to discuss, Marcus, one of the greatest sci-fi horror films ever made, directed by John Carpenter from 1982. Let's talk about The Thing. This is US Station 31. You read me? Found something in the ice. Need some help down here. Can anybody hear me? We found something. Twelve men have just discovered something. For 100,000 years, it was buried in the snow and ice. Now it has found a place to live, inside, where no one can see it or hear it. Or feel it. I know I'm human. Some of you are still human. This thing doesn't want to show itself. It wants to hide inside an imitation. It'll fight if it has to, but it's vulnerable out in the open. If it takes us over, then it has no more enemies. Nobody left to kill it. And then it's one. You guys gonna listen to Gary? You can beat one of those things! It's not even the greatest sci-fi horror, but so we'll have to get into that because I'm su super curious to see what you would have on the list ahead of it from a sci-fi horror. How did we get here? I, I think that I'm not, do you guys remember why we were having a conversation about this movie? But I think one of the things that came up, no pun intended, was that Marcus actually had never seen this movie, which took both Colin and I by surprise. I'm kind of curious, Marcus, how it is that we hung out together and you never watched this movie. <laughs> I find that very strange because we would have been hanging out at the same time that, you know, I know Andy and I watched this together multiple times. As I say, I think you were younger. Like, you knew Andy before me, three, four, five years before. You watched it younger, and we ended up watching more uh, 80s. I guess, I mean, this is 80s horror, but not really. This is like 70s horror to me. Friday the 13th and then Nightmare on Elm Street. So we watched a lot more of that stuff. And so I think this we nev just never saw her back to for whatever reason. You know this movie came out in like 1982, right? I know, I know. But the feel of it is more like Alien than it is like Nightmare on Elm Street. You know that movie came out in like 1979, right? I know. It's like a three-year difference and Nightmare on Elm Street came out in what, 84? Case closed. Okay, no. This case is far from closed. I'm not really following your logic or anything, but... <laughs> it feels like it's early, like more tied to their earlier 70s type horror. Uh, I don't. I don't agree at all. But 
That's okay. I think that's why we just didn't see it. I think we were watching different movies at the time that we were friends. There's certainly a greater chance of nudity in the films that you were talking about. Exactly. <laughs> and at 15, 16 <laughs> years old, those are far more likely the ones you're going to watch. Well, that, that's understandable, at least, because I, I used to uh, go through the TV guide and look for those late-night movies that were on HBO, and if it had graphic nudity, then I would set up the VCR to tape it at 2 o'clock in the morning, whatever it is, so I could watch it later. <laughs> hey, kids, this is what you had to do when you were 15 in the 80s. You didn't have the internet. <laughs> you had to be a lot more resourceful. Kids of today, they're so spoiled. You can just look and find whatever you want at any time, and we had to like wait. You get what you get. We had to work for it, damn it. <laughs> you, you never have to like look through the scrambled picture to try to find a boob, you know? <laughs> <laughs> ah, the good old days. One quick follow-up, Marcus, though. So you said 70s horror. I'm just curious because to me, 70s horror is a lot more, I guess, art house is one of the things I would say about 70s horror, like higher concepts. Yeah, I'm just comparing it more directly to Alien. It feels more like okay. that movie. And also, it feels a little more like Halloween itself, which is a little quieter. Well, one thing that is quite clear in this movie is that Dean Cundy was the uh, director of photography on both Halloween and The Thing. Yeah. And there are some amazing shots of going through the outpost that are so much directly tied to what you see in Halloween. And I think they're super effective, actually. Like that, th those scenes yeah. with the lighting and the fact that there's a very minimalist score, I, I think that actually does a lot to actually build the tension and the atmosphere inside the outpost. That's one of the great things about this movie is actually the photography. I think the whole movie looks pretty fantastic. For sure. Like the suspense of it too, that they build with that is really good. So the general population is, I would say a fan of this movie. So it does have an 8.2 rating on IMDb. That's really high. I'm not, I haven't really compared it to a few other horror movies to see what would score above that, but that's a super solid score. Um, I do think it, it earns that rating as well. I, I know Marcus, you and I could probably compare lists in terms of, you know, the top horror films here, the top horror films there, but if you look on just a, a general smattering of lists in terms of the greatest horror films ever made, this one does show up towards the top on many of them. The other movies that you see are The Exorcist, Halloween, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Shining. There's a cluster of those type of movies up front, but this is actually one of the ones that shows up as kind of the sci-fi horror because a lot of the other ones are slashers or supernatural stuff. So Marcus, I am curious Right off the bat, you know, you said that there are better sci-fi horror movies out there. So I'm curious to know what would be on your list. The Alien would be the one I'd pick as the, the best. Uh, the first Alien. The uh, second one I wouldn't consider a horror movie. It's more of an action movie. Yeah. And this feels like it, it doesn't rip off because it's slightly different, but it has a very similar feel to that first Alien movie. Just from the isolation, it's just a small group of people. The creature is among them. Very similar in the Alien. I know it's a little bit different and all, but I think I, li I like the first Alien much better. Colin, out of curiosity, what would you put as your favorite film between Alien and The Thing? Oh, definitely Alien. No, I, I love Alien. But based off of the list that you just mentioned, uh, I think The Thing is like right up there. Right. It's definitely, you know, like top two or three. Yeah, I mean, one of the things to me that makes this movie so amazing is the practical effects. One of my other questions is, if you were going to look at all of the horror movies that are out there or were made, you know, particularly obviously up through the eighties until CGI starts showing up. What are some of the greatest practical effects movies ever made? And, you know, to me, it's the thing. It's an American werewolf in London. It's the fly. And I would actually give a shout out to video drum. Cause I think that the special effects in that movie are actually pretty incredible. By the way, that's one of the reasons why I love the movie tremors. Cause tremors to me is one of the last great 
practical effect monster movies. That's one of the things I, I problems I have with CGI is it just kind of takes me out of it a little bit. So even though the effects might look in some respect a little bit more fake, I guess, than some of the stuff they're trying to do with CGI, I think the practical effects that Rob Bottin put together in this movie are just jaw-droppingly amazing. <laughs> I guess I would ask that question is, do you guys think of any movie that you would put ahead of this one from a horror standpoint that has superior practical effects? Well, I mean, I love An American Werewolf in London, as we've made clear on this podcast before. And I think the those effects are amazing. This is different because there's so many different types of things happening. It's not just like a werewolf transformation. But I, this has always been right up there for me. When I think about this movie, I think about the crazy creature effects. So yeah, yeah I, I think so. I mean, you're the horror guy. You're the one who like really is into this. So I would defer to you. But I think what you just mentioned is, I agree with that a lot. Marcus? Yeah. So this is where we differ. This is what I disliked about the movie the most. I'm not saying it's not, they're amazing practical effects. They were fantastic. There's nothing taking away from that, but it's not what I wanted out of the movie. I hope for a little more. And this is interesting because he had a comment when we talked about it during the writing that initially they wanted less and they ended up going for more practical effects. I think I wanted more of that Jaws effect, more of the hidden creature, keep things in suspenseful and kind of hidden and behind the scenes and you don't see it all versus like being over and having so much, seeing all the transformations and that stuff kind of throws you off. You don't have this like, oh, who could it be or this or that? And then you have these like massive transformations of these amazing practical effects. Like looking at that and saying like they did this all just with whatever they did, not like computers at all. It's super impressive. For me, it's not what, I wanted out of the movie. And so that's what I dislike about the movie the most is not because they were bad practical effects, but just not what I like in a horror movie. Can I jump in? I, I think what I really liked about this movie the first time I saw it was it had all of the um, nervous tension and the paranoia. And then all of a sudden you get just these amazing, crazy, disgusting, repulsive effects going on. They didn't have to like lean on one or the other. They just went full bore on both right. and they were very successful. So I had this on my list because I was, you know, the five reasons why I think this movie is great. And so the practical effects, that, that was number one on the list. Second thing for me is I do think that the tone, the overall tone of the film and the setting of the film are great. You know, the Arctic research station, totally isolated. It's inhospitable outside the facility itself. So you're trapped into a small box with a bad creature um, or creatures that are running around. And I do think that the fact that the tone is so nihilistic and oppressive and the intense paranoia and all that is there, I think it works really well. If you made this movie today, there would be the occasional, you know, somebody would do the, the joke or something to break the tension. And, th and there is almost none of that in this movie. There are a couple little visual things that I think are funny, right? So I think Having the noose when they look in the window and Blair's like, <laughs> I'm all right. I'm, I'm ready to come back. Yeah. That's pretty funny. And then there's another one where, I can't remember if it's windows or nulls when they're doing the blood test. They test the blood. And then the next scene you see, he's standing next to him with, with the flamethrower. <laughs> you know, so, so yeah, it just, yeah. they cut him out of the chair really quickly. And now he's like on the, the side of the humans. Those are two examples of where it's just small visual gags. But otherwise, everybody is pretty much fucked right from the beginning, right? And <laughs> everybody doesn't trust anybody very quickly. And that sense of paranoia that tone is, is what makes it such an amazing movie, or it actually really amplifies the effect of the movie. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I think the the basis of the creature being this shape-shifting, it could be anyone, 
really plays well to that. You don't know who's who. You don't know where this thing is. I think it worked well with that tone that they've established. I do love that part of the whole movie. I, I mean, think about it if this was the same movie, but instead of having like creature effects, the alien just off the screen quickly morphed into a human. It just wouldn't carry as big of a punch. Now the audience is, they've seen what, what happens. And so now there's this anxiety that if you find out that somebody's actually an alien, all hell is going to break loose all of a sudden. Yeah. And it's really unnerving. Well, that's like for the blood test scene, which is my favorite scene in the movie. What's going to happen when one of these things tests positive? And right. Like, holy shit, it's not going to be good. Yeah. I mean, I think the blood test sequence is the best scene in the movie. Yeah. I think we could all agree on that because I, I do think the way that they ramp the tension is just amazing. Really, really it's great. Third thing for me, by the way, so the score and the sound design. This is the first film that Carpenter did not score himself. I guess when he was working with the studio, they just assumed that he needed a composer. And I guess if you're going to find one, uh, Ennio Morricone is a pretty good one to land on <laughs> as, a, as a composer. But I, I do like the minimalist score and the score beat. I just think that it's very oppressive. And the, the fact that the score is not overused throughout the movie is, I think, great. I also think the sound design in this movie is really good. So I love hearing the flamethrowers, for example. The sound of the flamethrower is very, very satisfying. Uh, the sound of the thing, you know, moving around and, you know, the scene where, I, I forget if it's a Norris, when he's out there and he has his hand and he's, he opens his mouth and he makes that noise. It is That noise is actually super creepy and effective. Reminds me a little bit, by the way, at the very end of uh, the Invasion of the Body Snatchers remake from 1978 yeah, or 79. Yeah, 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 yeah. With Donald Sutherland at the end, that freaky moment. So I, I do think the sound design and the score and the way the score is used is great. And the way the score is not used also is super effective. I mentioned, you know, those slow cruising shots through the station. I just think it really does a lot for the atmosphere. By the way, I always just thought that the music was done by John Carpenter. Yeah. I had no idea that it was Ennio Morricone. Is he just trying to, is it Ennio Morricone doing John Carpenter? <laughs> and it kind of is. It is, yeah. It's, there's definitely a little bit. Yeah. I mean, you figure he probably listened to certainly the Escape from New York soundtrack. I think he said that he used synthesizers. I, th I don't remember if it was that he was asked to use synthesizers or if he'd listened to John Carpenter when they told him that we they wanted him to do the music. So he listened to John Carpenter's movies and he's like, oh, okay, well, this is my chance to use synthesizers. Yeah, it was, it was really interesting. You know, like he really channeled it well. It's just really good. It's very low key, but ominous. Good music for building tension. Yeah. My last point would be that uh, I think that the dog acting in this film is off the charts. Jed, Jed is amazing. I got notes on Jed. By the way, I think his name is Jake. No, Jed, Jed. No, but if you watch the behind the scenes documentary, they call him Jake. So his name was either Jake or Jed. I'm, I'm unclear. He was a half husky, half wolf. And apparently some of the, the stares and the slow moments where you see him standing there is because they said that was more of his wolf edge coming along. And sometimes when he would switch over to that mode, there would be instructions to the actors to just be really calm. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh... Interesting. The research I yeah. did said that uh, Jed, the commentary was he was an excellent animal actor and never looked directly into the camera, the dolly, or the crew members. But the So maybe the confusion with Jake, because Jed was not the dog at the beginning, the chase scene from the helicopter, that was a separate dog that they had to paint to look like Jed. 
Really? They painted it? <laughs> I wow. just love that they painted the dog to look like the other one. <laughs> they did the uh, solution from uh, Meet the Parents or whatever it is. <laughs> uh, Richard Mazur, he was actually going to play a different character. So he plays Clark, the dog handler. And he was going to play a different character, but he really actually wanted to work with the dogs. And so he ended up spending like a lot of time with Jed or Jake or whoever. And because of that, on the set when they're filming, the dog handler didn't need to like give directions. The dog was like really familiar with Richard Mazur. He would act really well without having to take direction. I'm glad we all did our dog research. No, well, I'm not even joking when I say that the dog acting was really good because, and I know it's just, they caught the right moments when they're filming with the camera, but the dog really does look like he's looking out the window at one point, studying yeah, yeah. what's going on. You know, he's, he stops in the hallway and he has a stare on his face. I had forgotten how good the dog was before I rewatched this movie. On the other so. end of that stare is a hot dog. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> the one thing I didn't like was the other dogs when the dog came into the, the kennel. Like none of them even moved or stirred or anything. And I've never seen dogs behave quite like that. Especially if you've seen my dog ever meet anybody. <laughs> so I guess they're well-trained dogs. But of course, a few minutes later, they were really moving. Yeah. yeah. yeah your, your dog almost killed me when I came to see you. He's a very friendly guy. He's just saying hello. He would chew through a fence to say hello. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to add in about um, practical effects in your comment on CGI. Yep. I did watch the 2011, which I thought was a remake, but I guess it is a prequel, which uses a heavy dose of CGI. And the practical effects are definitely better than that. So I would agree with you on that part. Yeah, I need to actually watch that again. I think I only watched it once. Mm -hmm. I, well, I remember thinking it was okay, but not great. Yeah, some parts I like about it and some parts are like, eh. It has Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio Weinstead or whoever it is that's in the movie. So <laughs> Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Come on. One of the Mary Elizabeths. Yes. Yeah. It actually has okay. a woman in the film. This film was not a success. And actually this film significantly probably impacted Carpenter's career because he had a three movie deal that he'd set up with Universal. And after this thing tanked, they dropped the contract with him. It had a budget of $15 million, which if you compare it to some of his earlier films, you know, the Halloween budget famously was $375,000. I think his budget for The Fog, I want to say was maybe like two and a half or $4 million or something like that. This was the biggest budget he'd worked with by far. And actually, I think, was it 10% of the budget? So 1.5 million went to practical effects when the studio originally was or wanted to pay only $200,000 for practical effects. So there was some tension around that right off the bat. It only made $19 million at the U.S. box office. And I don't even know if it was released internationally or not, but I guess it made a whole $3,000 according to uh, what Marcus wrote here. Marcus, <laughs> can you provide us with more details on that? I was just looking at the, uh, the IMDb and it had uh, $3,000 more in international sales. So it, okay. was, it was maybe one theater somewhere opened it and uh, sold out a weekend and that was it. <laughs> Carpenter actually says that this is his favorite movie of all the movies he's made. Interesting. So he was very disappointed with the reaction to this film and they actually screened this film, received mixed reviews when they screened it, and then Universal started getting frustrated and they were panicking on what they were going to do. So they actually backed off on some of the marketing spend. Like one of the things that they mm. did was... They had contracted uh, Drew Struzman to do the poster. It's a, some guy in a parka with light coming out of the top. And Carpenter saw that poster and he was really crestfallen. And he's like, this just looks like a stupid slasher movie. And he was bummed. And so by the time they even got ready to release it or do the distribution, Universal had decided that it was going to be a bit of a bomb anyways. And then, of course, it did underperform at the box office. That's, that's interesting about the, uh, the poster because 
I think the poster reminds me a lot more of the original movie, the 1951, The Thing from Another Planet. It yeah. has nothing to do with this movie. Yeah, it's kind of weird because it got a lot of negative reviews. Like they described it as a instant junk and wretched excess. And uh, even though they were like kind of praising them for their special effects, but they also criticized it for being like repulsive. I mean, that's kind of my view. I think I have the same, similar with uh, Roger Ebert. It's just very off-putting. Like it, oh, it, it well, is then, repulsive and disgusting. You don't like it. This is the first time you saw it. So maybe like 10 years later, you'll be like, hey, this is a masterpiece. Yeah, maybe. Because yeah. that's essentially what happened, right? This became yeah. a cult hit after it came out on home video. I mean, it might've suffered from the time that it was released, right? It was the same year that E.T. came out. Very <laughs> different movie in terms of alien visitation. That's a different audience too. So I don't think it would be affected by that at all. <laughs> Well, it was also like, there are a lot of other science fiction and fantasy movies. And there's also a recession that was going on. People not looking for these nihilistic and bleak films. And so it kind of had the cards stacked against it. Dave, so if uh, you said this was Carpenter's favorite of his movies, how would you rank his top five movies for you? Big Trouble Little China, The Thing, Halloween, Escape from New York, and... Probably The Fog. I guess that would that would be his top five. Colin? Uh, number one for me is definitely Dark Star. <laughs> I see. I, have you ever seen Dark Star? I've seen Dark Star. I have. I have. I think I saw it around the time that The Thing came out because my dad had told me all about it because he had seen it. And it's super low budget. It's a goofy student film is what it is. Exactly. And he told me that uh, they used a beach ball for the, for yeah. the monster. <laughs> and yeah, it's... Uh, so, so obviously I'm kidding. My... Number one would probably be Halloween and then The Thing and then probably a tie for Big Trouble in Little China and Escape from New York. I like the beginning and the end of Escape from New York. It's the middle that I I don't love so much. Number five, probably either like They Live, probably They Live, maybe Starman. Yeah, Yeah, I need to rewatch Starman. It's been a long time for me. So we have about the same list. I, I have them in it slightly. I have Halloween, Big Trouble, They Live, Escape from New York, and then The Thing. When we get to the Carpenter discussion... You guys might just need to take a nap because I could probably talk about my thoughts with Carpenter <laughs> for about 15 minutes. I, I did like that he had a Chevy Chase in the movie and his, his best way to use him was to make him invisible so you don't have to watch him. It's a nice touch. Well, you know what's funny about that is I actually tried <laughs> rewatching Memoirs of an Invisible Man, which is a movie prior to rewatching it. I would have thought, oh, you know, actually, I think, the, I think it's a pretty good movie. And then I watched it and they went a little overboard with the invisible effects kind of things with like a cup moving in the air or a phone moving in the air. Oh, did it? Yeah, there's an awful lot of that. I remember enjoying it. I thought I liked it. I'd actually like to watch The Fog again. I've only seen it once. It's really good from an atmosphere standpoint. I mean, it's that's the, the main thing you get out of it. Very atmospheric. Very foggy. Hell, I see, I see The Fog every day. <laughs> <laughs> moving on to the, I guess we can call it kind of the legacy or the history of this film. This was a remake, of course. It was originally directed in 1951 by Howard Hawks. One of the things that's actually really cool is that they used the same logo, the font, the imagery for the title screen. The way that they actually created that, they had a light shining on a garbage bag that they that they cut out the, the words, the thing, on the front of a fish tank, and then they set the bag on fire. And then so as the bag burns up, you see the light come burning through, and that's how you get the title card for the thing. It's actually really cool. Oh, cool. I was going to say, it looks like a uh, the film, like you, you leave a projector running on a, a, a film. Oh, cellular. yeah, like the film burning. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, it exactly. It does. 
they sort of carried that over from the original, the thing from another planet, or at least paid homage to it in that way. Yeah, they did, definitely. Yeah, and then in the thing, the 2011 version, they kind of did it, but kind of didn't. And I was like a little disappointed that they didn't do it all the way. Yeah, I don't understand the marketing on the thing 2011, right? Because you guys were confused if it was a remake or a prequel. And why do you call it the thing versus like giving it, I don't know, a different name or the, the first thing. The first thing, right? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, first of all, I, I never even saw the marketing for the when it came out. I think I saw it on Netflix. I was like, they made a remake of The Thing? And so I was completely lost. And yeah. it was only the second time that I watched it, which was immediately after rewatching The Thing 1982, that I realized, oh, this is a prequel. <laughs> I, I, one thing I would, would say about that movie is I do recall that they did a decent job of at least tying in some of the stuff that they show in The Thing movie, right? So the, so yes. the, the, the ice block and the spaceship and all that kind of stuff, they, they did an okay job with it, as I recall. But I think it was more than an okay job. They really took key parts of that movie and were able to weave it together to really show it as a... Um, as being a prequel it's it's the other part of that the writing and again like stupid scientists really dumb scientists that i didn't like what i liked about the prequel or the 2011 movie is they did a much better job explaining why they were there it all seemed a lot more plausible it felt more realistic i'm not saying it's a better movie they brought down the scientists they had found something she was a um i forgot even what she was uh, paleontologist or so, whatever she was, she's like used to doing this stuff. She's and one so, of the ologists. Yeah, she was an ologist of some sort. Yeah. She was a urologist. <laughs> <laughs> and so they explained this setup and they explained like what they were doing in Antarctica. And so a lot of that part I thought worked well and helped you understand what was going on in the movie, uh, which I think wasn't in the the original. But the rest of the movie, it ends up being like. I don't know, it feels like they're trying to make an Aliens and just becomes more of an action movie than a, any horror or suspense. Once a monster kind of comes out, it's just a typical kind of action movie after that point. True, I think it does become more of a, like a monster movie, but yeah, I would agree with you that they do some good initial setup, but then once they find the block of ice, you know, they, they cut out the block of ice, yeah, then they I just didn't. throw out like yeah, all yeah. logic and reason and you're like, okay, these people aren't real scientists. They're just like yeah. throwing out the scientific method they're forgetting about all these protocols that, you know, for safety or, and it's, and that's, that's implausible, which is interesting because like Ebert in his review of the 1982 Carpenters, you know, he found it disappointing because of uh, the implausible behavior of the scientists on that icy outpost, which I find hilarious because I don't really see that, but I yeah. definitely see that in other movies, including yeah. the 2011 version. I mean, Marcus, you believe that about Carpenters version, right? Were there scientists in the movie? There were scientists in the movie. Do you want to know who the scientists are? The Dr. Blair, I think, was kind of doing some sort of science. I can tell you. So Blair, he's the senior biologist. Fuchs is the assistant biologist. What, wait, wait, what biology? What's he studying? Like, biologist. why were they there? They're in Antarctica. They're thinking they got Okay, well, hold on. Hold on. So, so uh, there's also Norris who's, Norris, who's the geologist, and Bennings, who's the meteorologist. So those are all the scientists. Do they have more helicopter pilots than scientists? They're in Antarctica. So they are <laughs> looking at how animals survive during these incredible conditions. They're looking at the weather. You know, they're taking core samples. They so showed that? To me, this is... I missed that No, part. but this is all assumed. <laughs> it, 
They showed core samples in the 2011 version. I'm just saying, like, I'm playing a little bit devil's advocate, but it, no, it, no, it but was not well explained in the movie at all. True. I would agree with you there, but I'm okay at assuming things. The other guys were all mechanics, helicopter pilots, uh, you know, someone dog like handlers, a, a dog <laughs> handlers, and cooks. To me, it all makes sense. It's just, do you really need to see them doing all that? I mean, look, like, you see Nalls cooking, you see Windows on the radio. He's the radio operator. I mean, come on. There's a three to one ratio of scientists to others to support them. If it was just all scientists, they'd all freeze to death and die. Carpenter said that one of the versions they were toying with, the group that was here was not actually the core group of scientists, but also a group that was there to kind of maintain the station over the winter months and be a location to potentially resupply other bases that were in the area, like international cooperation. It is the winter and this is not their active time to be out doing scientific experiments and taking core samples. If this movie took place in the summer, I'm sure there'd be like an 18 to 24 minute sequence of them just taking core samples. And that probably would have satisfied (laughs) your need to have some more science in the movie. There was very little idea of what they're even doing out there and who's in charge and who's doing what. It just was very kind of confusing. So I think they could have done 30 seconds to one minute of something. I think it could have helped. Whatever. (laughs) (laughs) So Marcus, this was your very first time seeing the movie. Colin, I'm curious, how old were you when you saw this movie? Or what was the, when was the first time you saw it? Do you remember? Yeah, it's probably like 11 or 12. It was not in the theater. It was definitely on um, home video. Yeah. Yeah. I think we rented it from Video Mania and... (laughs) had uh, some ideas of, of what it was, but I just, I, I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, I, I distinctly remember the first time I saw this because it was in uh, Andy McGowan's living room and I was, I would have been 12, I think at the time. And I think it was showing on HBO. Andy's dad was a, a very smart rocket scientist, uh, you know, program leader. And he and all of his buddies apparently at the uh, propulsion labs figured out a way to decode all the cable channels. So he had a little box on top of the TV set. <laughs> And so everything was unscrambled, right? So hopefully I'm not uh, ratting anybody out, but we knew that the thing was coming on. And so Andy and I sat there with all the lights off, you know, in his living room and watched it. I was totally blown away by the movie. I, I loved it. And so I do think that obviously, you know, the how and when you see a movie is very impactful. And in particular for me, I was a huge horror fan. So I spent the greater part of my teen years tracking down horror movies and reading about horror movies. There's a very famous story where our friend Tom the very first time he met me, he comes in the house, he walks upstairs, I'm in my bedroom in the middle of summer. Apparently I have all my blinds drawn so it's dark in my room and I'm sitting there reading Fangoria magazine and <laughs> Tom you know, went to my brother and said, man, your brother's weird, which uh, is <laughs> probably correct. But you know, I was a huge fan of horror movies. The gore part of it was very titillating. You'd want to go try to find those movies that were the goriest, the scariest. I knew all the special effects artists that worked on the different movies. And so I knew who Rick Baker was and Tom Savini and Stan Winston in particular. This is probably where I really got introduced to Rob Bottin, but he also did The Howling. And they're amazing craftsmen and artists. I mean, I just think their artistry is insane. And some of the stuff they come up with to actually solve for these practical effects, their creativity and their resourcefulness is just remarkable. All those different effects artists, I can think about those key scenes, right? I mean, Rick Baker, he received a a Special Academy Award for his work on An American Werewolf in London because of that transformation sequence. And that's arguably, I think, the greatest practical effects sequence maybe of all time. I think there are some moments in the thing that come close, but that's probably number one. And then he also did the living television stuff that shows up in Videodrome. So great was he, Rick Baker, in, in that transformation scene that John Landis did it again 
in um, Michael Jackson's Thriller video. Thriller, yeah. <laughs> Rick Baker is one of those guys that he took Rob Bottin under his wing when Rob Bottin was 14. He started working with him. I think when Rob Bottin did the effects on this movie, he was either, I think, 21 or 22. So he was, I mean, think oh, about wow. being that old and being in charge of all the effects. The dude's just amazing. He's a master craftsman. The other uh, effects artists that come to mind, like Tom Savini, right? So Tom Savini, he did a whole bunch of the Friday 13th stuff. There's the very famous machete slide, you know, Friday 13th, the final chapter. Jason gets the machete in the side of the head and then falls on it and slowly goes down. Uh, and then, of course, Stan Winston has all the stuff with Terminator, etc. The fact that I was a huge horror guy, I loved the practical effects. Uh, that's probably the reason why this movie is still on my top 20 list today. And that's why I don't like it. (laughs) 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 Which is funny. A couple other reviews I read. Ebert had a very similar commentary. He said, Carpenter made his choice to concentrate on special effects technology and allowed the story and people to become secondary. And then another review was Ginger Varney from LA Weekly said, the thing is just like the howling, a showcase for fiber and latex. It's not saying that it's bad effects. They're amazing, but it's just not what I want in a movie. And I can see it not doing well for critics. And there's a certain audience for Fangoria magazine, and it's not the critics, right? I'm not well, surprised by that. Personally, I just think like in general, mainstream critics don't really go for horror movies. It has yeah, to be yeah. something like Alien that just wows you. Yeah. Ebert's, he's enjoyed horror movies pretty well. Ebert actually rode hard for Halloween when it first came out. He gave it, I think, a four-star review or something and wrote a very long, glowing review about the film and it was one of the things that actually kind of kicked that movie you know into the next level in terms of people going to see it he definitely has supported horror in the past but i, I, I agree sometimes he's a little bit uneven yeah well i yeah. wonder what roger ebert what his take on the toxic avenger would be <laughs> i bet he would really yeah. enjoy the head crushing scene yeah, exactly <laughs> so that's where the thing differs too right because it is kind of that gross special effects and practical effects but then it also does have the the suspension tension and mood that was in like halloween to me, it's like divided in that sense. There is kind of two sides to it. Yeah, I don't think this movie is just about the effects. I think they yeah, do a great job with the, oh, I was going to say the man-on-man action <laughs> in terms of the, <laughs> the male. What movie were you watching? <laughs> the uh, male character interaction and also the group dynamics. I think that all that and the fact that it's the slow ramping tension, I think it works really well. For sure. Moving on to the development of the film. You know, it was based on a 1938 novella called Who Goes There? Uh, again, Hawks made it in, I think it was 1951. When John Carpenter saw the Howard Hawks version, he then went and read the original novella, which I haven't read the novella, but apparently that's a lot more based on paranoia with the idea that somebody may not be who they say they are. And have you guys read it by any chance? No, just read uh, some summaries of it. And I was really surprised because it's very, very similar to all three movies the 51, 82, and and 2011, with some minor differences. Like, they're Americans, number one. It sort of takes the place of the Norwegians. That's really what it focuses on. Finding the alien, cutting the alien out. This alien has been there for like 20 million years. There's also a lot more researchers at this base. That all changes with Bill Lancaster's script for Carpenter's movie. This movie was out there there was a desire to do it after Howard Hawks's version, but it really sort of languished in development hell during the 1970s and really only got picked back up after Alien came out and was a huge success. The studio ended up approaching John Carpenter to be the director, but then they, they decided to pass on him basically because he was an independent filmmaker. So then they started looking at other directors like 
Toby Hooper and John Landis. And could you imagine if this was a John Landis movie? No. <laughs> I mean, and I understand why, but you, an American werewolf in London. Sure. I get it, but very different. There's a lot of humor in that. There's movie. There's a lot of humor in that movie. Yeah. Yeah. Is Toby Hooper basically known for two things? Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Poltergeist? I think so. I always felt like Steven Spielberg ghost directed Poltergeist. Poltergeist. Yeah. Yeah. From the IMDb trivia, so it says that Toby Hooper was originally slated to direct and co-write the film before John Carpenter was attached. Hooper's version would have been drastically different from the Carpenter version, featuring an alien that did not shapeshift or assimilate and following an Ahab-like character named the Captain who goes on an epic quest to find and kill the thing. The film would have served as its own film as both a remake and a sequel to the 1951, blah, blah, blah. Hooper also wanted to make the film a horror comedy with slapstick humor. <laughs> it was pitched as a swashbuckling action adventure, a modern-day Moby Dick set not in the ocean but in the bottom of the world, Antarctica. Producers Drew Turner and Stuart Cohen were appalled by the pitch script and eventually <laughs> fired Hooper, with Cohen later saying, we avoided a disaster. It would have been one of the worst movies ever made. <laughs> I just thought that was uh, I thought that was pretty good. That's funny. Wow. Yeah. So I'm glad that movie didn't get made for sure. Yeah. Uh, this yeah, is well, better it, than that. Toby Hooper also made the Fun House. I remember that being kind of a fun '80s horror slasher movie. I don't think I saw that one. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre too. I don't know if you've seen that, but that's super tongue in cheek. It's very very weird. It's a very interesting movie. Not necessarily a good movie. This movie ended up getting written by Bill Lancaster, and he uh, I wasn't actually aware of this, but he's only got two writing credits. One is for The Thing, and the other is for The Bad News Bears. <laughs> Which, from a tone standpoint, are remarkably similar. <laughs> it's pretty surprising. Before Lancaster came in and, and, and wrote the script, there is a Close Encounters connection here. Do you know what that is? I was going to say Carlo Rimbaldi, but I'm not sure if that's right. No. Your man, Hal Barwood, and mm-hmm. Matthew Robbins, who both were involved in the writing of Close Encounters, they actually held the rights to make an adaptation of this movie, but they passed on the opportunity. And so Universal then got the rights to it. Oh, interesting. So Lancaster starts writing the script and he did it a good thing, which was to reduce the number of characters from 37 researchers to just 12, because A, it's just a lot easier to follow the story and who the characters are. And it also makes it feel a lot more isolated and solitary, which I think was you know really quite a, a good thing to do for the script. But like Marcus mentioned, he wanted to keep the creature largely concealed, a la Jaws. Rob Bottin convinced Carpenter otherwise. I would have preferred that movie, I think. This film, it might have just gone on to be a little bit forgettable, I think, if it didn't have that. Or it could have been as big as Jaws. Who knows? Unlikely. I, I don't think so. <laughs> but I think it had like two things like really going for it, or three things. The atmosphere, the amazing creature effects, and also, of course, Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell is a god among men. <laughs> do, you, do you have a bit of a man crush on Kurt Russell? I mean, we all know that you do. Not a bit of a man crush, dude. It's a full-on crush. <laughs> you got a full-on boner for Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell has played three of my all-time favorite movie characters, and they're all in John Carpenter movies. You have this, R.J. McCready, Snake Plissken, and then, of course, Jeff fucking Jack Burton. (laughs) 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 Welcome to the 50s. (laughs) So uh, the character from my favorite movie, who I could not come up with his name, but yes, uh, Jack Burton. Uh, I do. I'm just a huge, huge Kurt Russell fan. Do you know what the original ending of this movie was, at least in Lancaster's script? Yeah, it was actually that uh, they were going to transform and be the thing at the end. Right. 
and Carpenter, he did not like this idea. In fact, I think they're, so they were going to transform into the thing and then end up being rescued. And there was some corny line at the end that they were going to say something like, um, hey, which way to a hot meal? And Carpenter thought this was way too shallow. And so he thought that having the two survivors freeze to death was the ultimate act of heroism. It added this ambiguity because you don't really know if either one was infected. Where does John Carpenter rate as a director for you guys in terms of personal list of favorite directors, et cetera? I don't think Mm. he actually falls on any sort of like top five or 10 list. I do appreciate his work a lot. I mean, I do like those movies that I had mentioned earlier. Halloween and the Thing, I think, are the two that really stand out to me. I know you. there's a special place in your heart for Big Trouble in Little China. Yeah. I don't particularly share it. I like the movie. I think it's really fun and enjoyable, but I, I just don't like love it like that. So he doesn't really fall. In, in fact, I think that he might only be on my list of top two, 38, maybe once. With Halloween, I assume. Yeah, yeah with Halloween. So The Thing is not in your top two, 38. No, it probably falls just outside it. I, I might actually probably will update it because I think... It warrants inclusion? I think it probably warrants inclusion, yeah. He's like Brian De Palma to a certain degree. The movies are good, but he's not an absolute favorite for me. There's nothing bad about him. I think he makes enjoyable movies. He's just not a favorite. I think he certainly did from the late 70s to what about like maybe 1990? Like 90, yeah. yeah. He's probably in my top five all-time directors. I'd have to make that list. I haven't gone through that exercise. But he's also a super frustrating director. This did not do well. This was his first big studio movie. So he had a three-picture deal. It didn't do well financially. They dropped him from the deal. He was very disillusioned. There was some emotional impact, I think, of this film underperforming. And then if you look at the films he made after this, right up until 1991, where he makes Memoirs of an Invisible Man, which I think he was still trying to do something pretty high concept and interesting. I'm not sure that movie works. As I mentioned upon rewatch, it was falling a little flat for me. But then after that, the wheels just totally come off. He made Vampires. It could have been an opportunity to return to form, but that movie just is not particularly good. And then he made Ghosts of Mars, which is basically a really shitty remake of his own film, uh, Assault on Precinct 13. I mean, I think Ghosts of Mars is a terrible movie. He hasn't really directed much since then. I mean, I went so far as to track down an anthology horror series that I'm blanking on the name on right now. He filmed one of the sequences called Cigarette Burns. It's sort of interesting. It's the idea that there's a film out there that if you watch it, it drives you insane. So I thought that was pretty good. But since then, you know, hasn't really done much. And is right now, by the way, teasing a sequel to The Thing, that he might want to do a sequel to The Thing, which unless he found some of his old inspiration, I would hope that that really doesn't happen because I would hate to see some half-assed, shitty update of what I consider to be possibly his greatest film. I would need to think about that. I mean, Halloween is hard to walk past, I think, just in terms of the impact and the intensity and the fact that I consider it the scariest movie ever made for me personally. But The Thing, I think, might be his most accomplished film. I guess Carpenter is probably my biggest disappointment for directors because I really, really am so passionately attached to all the stuff he did in the 80s, and I love, love those movies, but... Would I want to see a new John Carpenter movie right now? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe not. It's almost like Kubrick to a certain degree. He's not making anything new. There's nothing to look forward to. Well, Kubrick's not making anything new because he's dead. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that's the other thing. I was shocked that, uh, <laughs> that, that, that Carpenter is only 75 years old. I swear. He looks like he's 90 at least. Well, he's a smoker, actually. Carpenter is a walking advertisement for not smoking. 
Seriously, like I would have thought 10, 20 years ago, he was 80 years old. He just looks old. Sorry, John. I got a question for you, Dave. Two films. What are your opinions on Christine and Escape from L.A.? I think Christine's actually a really well-made movie. It looks great. I think that the photography and the, the score, it works well. I think the problem I have with Christine is it's a killer car. And so there's just like an inherent campiness that is built into it. So I'm not sure that you can ever get to the level of it being genuinely scary or unnerving or any of that kind of stuff because it's a killer car. And those killer car movies, I'm like, you know, why don't you just run sideways? That's always my thought if a car is chasing you. <laughs> I read all the Stephen King books when I was a kid. And Christine is a great book by Stephen King, but it's not his best work, in my opinion. So it's a super competently made movie. I think there's a lot in it that's very uh, interesting and, and looks great, honestly, but it's just not a favorite for me. I it's not a movie I go back and rewatch. To your second question, Escape from L.A. ranks up there as one of the worst theatrical experiences I ever had in my life. <laughs> <laughs> that movie is an abomination, in my opinion. And so you take this amazing character, Snake Plissken, he looks cool. I mean, that's one thing. He pulls off a couple, there's a couple fun sequences in the movie, like there's a this Bangkok rules fight where he guns a couple people down. But there's literally a scene where he's on a surfboard and they're surfing a tsunami like through Los Angeles. <laughs> By the way, the other thing is the special effects in the Escape from LA, which I think was 96, they're vastly superior in Escape from New York. And by the way, the stuff that they did in Escape from New York from a filming standpoint is also really creative because, you know, when you see those vector graphics images when Snake Plissken's coming in on the glider, the way that they did that was they actually, they went to a dark room, they built these structures, and then they taped off the corners, and they had a camera that panned along it because they couldn't do actual CGI because it was too expensive. Oh, wow. That's an example of where, you know, like Carpenter and Dean Kundi and all those guys were at their creative best, and I think 96 is just like a lazy cash-in movie. I think it sucks. Do you have an opinion? <laughs> it looked so bad that I never saw it. Okay, well, you made the right move there. Yeah, I'm bad. with Colin. That being said, by the way, Prince of Darkness is actually, I think, a pretty good and interesting and weird movie. That one, I think, works. Satan is a swirling ball of goo that's been locked up in a church basement, and they discover it, and they bring in a research team from the university. It's pretty cool. All right, well, moving on to cast. Cast overall. I mean, I think we can all probably agree that it's Kurt Russell and just a bunch of that guys. Those guys. Yeah. Pretty much. So you have Kurt Russell as McCready. The one thing that's interesting here is that Carpenter was not initially interested in casting Kurt Russell for the role. And so, but what he was doing is he was actually having meetings with Kurt Russell. And so Kurt Russell was saying, you know, have you, what about this guy? What about that guy? But then I guess three weeks before filming, they still didn't have McCready and Carpenter said, hey, you want to play McCready? And at that point, Kurt Russell was like, yeah, okay, sure. Why not? He'll do it. And apparently he had a good time filming. It's kind of like, your dude is Kurt Russell. Why aren't you just working with Kurt again? Yeah, well, it's funny. I didn't even know that Kurt Russell wasn't the first choice until we did research for this podcast. So I just sort of assumed that he's like, oh, yeah, let's, let's make another movie. Kurt, why not? It took him a year to grow out his hair and beard for the role. Which doesn't really track to the three weeks before. So like, what was going on there? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he's just down and out. Maybe they, they decided like, okay, you're it. Now we have to wait a year. <laughs> <laughs> Carpenter's like, Look, dude, there's a really strong chance you're going to end up getting cast in this anyway. So, uh, why not you start growing the beard? Don't, don't cut your hair, don't shave. I like the um, description of McCready in the script because it basically sort of screams Kurt Russell. 35, helicopter pilot, likes chess, hates the cold, the pay is good. McCready's <laughs> a fun character because he's very no nonsense. Yeah, I'm not sure if pouring uh, whiskey into a computer coming out of an outpost is a great, great idea. 
It's, it's funny that you say that because that was on my list of things that you're like, man, eh, don't work. I mean, can you imagine if McCready was walking around every time he lost a game? It's like, it's like, oh, who took a shit on the pinball machine, right? It's like, it was McCready, right? Like, who, who smashed the ping pong table? McCready. Who destroyed that one video game that they had? I'm not even sure what it was. Like the Pac-Man machine. It was McCready. Like, God damn it, McCready, calm down. You're taking away all the recreation for everybody. Marcus, I know why they did it, right, in terms of setting him up. So he had some attitude and he's the anti-hero and all that kind of stuff. But I, I agree that uh, that that seems a little cavalier with the uh, station equipment. This is not 82. The computer is worth something then. That's yeah, true. Like, you're at an Antarctic outpost. You're not just destroying it. Plus, like, how, how often is he drunk in the movie? He's just wandering around holding, he does like the, like, I'm holding the bottle of, uh, what do you have, Jane? Jane B. Scott. Yeah, he's just like walking around the station, like, with a bottle. You're, like, well, it is winter. Question about Kurt Russell. Maybe I'll ask Marcus, because I, we, I, I know what your favorite Kurt Russell film is, or yep. role, which is, of course, Jack Burton. Right. So, Marcus, do you have a favorite Kurt Russell? Yeah, I think it was the voice of Copper in uh, Fox and the Hound. Okay. I like him a lot. Jack Burton's probably my favorite character. It's probably the best cockiness, goofy. He's a fucking but. idiot. That's the best. He's a heroic <laughs> yeah, idiot. Like, but he has all the confidence in the world, too. He, he thinks he's the hero, but he's actually the idiot. <laughs> yeah. Dennis Dunn is actually the hero. That's what makes that movie so great, by the way. Just the whole time, this is, he's so clueless walking through it. So it's great. Exactly. But he's got the smirk and confidence that, he, that he's not that either. No, oh, totally. Yeah, that's, yeah, it's great. Westerns, I think he's great in. He, comedies, he has great timing on that stuff. So I'm a big fan. Miracle's a good movie. Have you guys ever seen Miracle? I have not. Oh, he plays the coach? Yeah. All right, well, let's move on for cast. So you have Wilford Brimley. And <laughs> what disease do we all think about when we think about <laughs> Wilford Brimley? Diabetes. 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 Thank you, Wilford. Oatmeal. <laughs> Quaker Oats guy. Quaker Oats. It's the right thing to do. Not too expensive either. Oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Blair can throw down in this movie. When when he gets in the fight with a couple guys, he represents. Good for you, Wilford Brimley. I mean, Wilford Brimley is one of those guys that was, he hit his early 70s and his late 40s, so I'm not sure exactly how old he is, but he just kind of stayed at that age throughout his acting career. But I think he's really good in this. He was basically an unknown actor at the time. So this is like the first time we've all seen Wilford Brimley in a movie. And the only reason I even looked it up is because in the in the credits, he's listed as A. Wilfred Brimley. I was like, wait a minute. What? He's, not, you. he's not the, the Wilfred Brimley? <laughs> Wilfred. There's not a whole, he's not, there's not a whole race of them. I was going to say, how many Wilfred Brimleys are out there? <laughs> Could you imagine if there's a whole race of Wilfred Brimleys running around? <laughs> Maybe that's the thing sequel right there. It's just Wilford Brimley's everywhere. Oh my, oh my. It's interesting you say that about the first appearance because uh, that was the same thing for Keith David, who plays Childs. This is yeah. his first movie? Yeah, this is his first movie. First credited film. Yeah. Oh, wow. Because he's done like 180-something movies since then. No, oh, yeah. he's got 352 credits. Well, that has to be TV too then or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he never okay. stops working. Man. He's just always, always working. He's the hardest working man in show business. There it is. I always think of just that fight in uh, They Live is just fantastic. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's just legendary. That's an all-timer. And he's also in The Quick and the Dead. Yeah, he plays the uh, the soldier. The soldier, right. And then I just watched Pitch Black, and um, he's in that. He's got a big role in that. With Vin Diesel? Uh, yeah, with Vin Diesel. 
Okay. I remember thinking really? that was a pretty good movie. Was that good when you it watched is, it? Yeah, it is a good movie. It was not quite as great as I remembered, but it's still very solid. And then, of course, we all know Keith David from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. He played Keith the Handyman. Did that? We call that one? No, me either. No, I didn't. I had no idea. Ernie Hudson was the front runner for that role. They, they were looking at like Carl Weathers and Bernie Casey and Isaac Hayes. And then they're like, we're going to cast Ernie Hudson. And then Keith David came in to read and they're like, oh, no, it's him. He's our child's. Well, at least Ernie Hudson made the Ghostbusters team after that. So true. That's something. Very true. Worked out okay. Yeah. Uh, so you have Richard Masser. So he plays Clark, the dog handler. I think somebody put the notes here. He's the 80s that guy. He did a ton of 80s television. That's what I remember Richard mm-hmm. Master for. Yep. You know, little guest stints on LA Law and all that kind of stuff. By the way, also um, not listed here on our cast list, but... Uh, Richard Dysart. Richard Dysart, right? So also on LA Law. So it's kind of funny that a lot of these actors who were part of the ensemble are kind of journeyman working actors. I mean, Keith David, I think, rose above that for sure. So did Wilford Brimley with uh, the diabetes situation. So you got diabetes. <laughs> the diabetes situation. But I do think that all of them are recognizable for the most part. Oh, for sure. There's a couple, maybe not like, you know, Fuchs, I think, and the actors that uh, there are a couple that, that don't necessarily well, show up again. So since you mentioned Fuchs, yep. I said that there was a Seinfeld connection. Fuchs, uh, Joel Polis played the episode. If you remember, it's called the comeback where George tries to come up with a good comeback after somebody oh. insults him. The he's the guy. Store. He's the jerk store guy. Oh, the jerk store guy. Uh, yep. Oh. Oh, uh, that's funny. cool. I did not recognize that one. Uh, and then I don't have anything to say about Donald Muffet. <laughs> Donald <laughs> Muffet. I fucking love Donald Muffet. He's great. He's got the best eyebrows ever. They're just these huge, huge eyebrows. He like played the president in Clear and Present Danger. He was Lyndon Johnson in The Right Stuff. He's just a total character actor. And personally, I think he kind of steals the best scene in this movie. Oh, the, the blood test. He might have the best quote in the movie, for exactly. sure. Exactly. I know you gentlemen have been through a lot. But when you find the time, I'd rather not spend the rest of this winter tied to the fucking couch! All right, well, anybody else from the cast you guys want to talk about? No, not really. Well, if it's not really, you kind of want to talk about somebody. So who is it? No. Really? No. Oh, well, okay. David Clennon played Palmer. Um, <laughs> Palmer's the guy, jokey guy, stoner, whatever. He's a mechanic. They were looking at Jay Leno, Gary Shandling, and Charles Fleischer. What? Roger Rabbit, the voice of Roger Rabbit. Calm. Yeah. You know who that guy reminds me of? I almost see him as a young Bruce Dern. Sure. Yeah. And by the way, really quickly to go back to Donald Moffat for a second. You know who he reminds me of? You know the eagle from the Muppets? Yes. Like the eagle character? <laughs> yes, yes. Sam the eagle, yeah. Sam the eagle, yeah. I totally. think that's, that's, that's who he reminds me of. <laughs> okay, well, moving on to a plot summary. Marcus, hit us with a plot summary. A bunch of dudes fight a shape-shifting alien that invades an Antarctic science station, sowing fear and paranoia as they fight the alien and each other to survive. It's very dramatic. I'm, I'm excited already. All right. <laughs> All right, so my first question... Are flamethrowers standard issue equipment for Arctic research? Or do you just have them out there for fun? What's the scenario? What are you using a flamethrower for? And why do they have at least two, maybe three of them? I think they might have had four. They had a lot. I was wondering the same thing, and I don't know. It can kind of work because they're in the Arctic, and then maybe they need to melt a whole bunch of snow for something. 
but it doesn't seem like the, uh, the way they go. Do you think it was just part of the recreation situation because they know that they can't really set anything on fire? So they just, just hey, let's, uh, let's send some flamethrowers up there in case the guys get bored. I yeah. think it's because um, a lot of times they have to go out on patrols and they have to burn a lot of hooches. They're going to burn the whole village? <laughs> yeah, it, I, I really don't. I don't have, no, do the whole village, sorry. They're going to do the village. They, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why they would have flamethrowers really other than what marcus said well it could get pretty cold so you might need to feel a little toasty you have to say that the look of the flamethrowers with the orange fire contrast against all the blue and the ice it just looks so cool oh it looks fantastic i mean so yeah. there's a reason why you have it for the movie 100 yeah. percent. personally i have no logic complaints whatsoever i'm just like yeah, yeah, yeah. they got flamethrowers that sounds good it just looks fantastic i'm just wondering if their supply request back to the you know mainland or whatever and they're saying yeah, we need some uh, beakers, we need some things for some core samples, we need some flamethrowers, we need a few like you know, chairs and a table, and then they're hoping that like... This goes through. Flamethrowers, that's kind of strange, but all right, just give them what they want. <laughs> just like, you know, <laughs> you crazy kids out there, just have some fun. Have fun. By the way, I would add to that grenades and dynamite, right? Because when the Norwegian helicopter is coming in, they have a whole crate of grenades. Wait, wait, were those grenades? Dynamite I would give you because like, you're going to blast something you need. Right, the permafrost or whatever. Right? That, yeah, yeah, something like I that I can give you. Grenades, mm, probably not. But were they grenades or were they like some sort of phosphorus type of something or other? <laughs> were they? I mean, they, they look like that, a canister. Has there ever been like a military situation? Get me one of those phosphorus something or others. <laughs> I don't know. They didn't look like actual grenades, did they? I thought they were grenades because also he drops the grenade by the helicopter and it blows up the helicopter in the beginning. Yeah. After you get shot. I thought they were maybe like some sort of makeshift grenade. I could be wrong. Because, yeah, why would you have a grenade? Right. Yeah. It's some sort of equipment maybe used in geology and, and blasting that they're, and that they're just using that as a grenade. Maybe at some point, either uh, the Americans were planning to attack the Norwegians or the Norwegians were going to attack the Americans. <laughs> it's some sort of a, yeah, <laughs> the great Arctic battle of 82. <laughs> All right, Marcus, I think you have the next question. Who is in charge here? Why is McCready the one taking complete charge of the situation? The captain is completely useless. Well, first of all, Gary, played by Donald Moffat, he's the station commander's. He has no authority. Nobody listens to him. He shoots the Norwegian in the beginning. Yeah, he's a good shot. He carries a sidearm. That means he's in charge. I guess. I don't know. He doesn't act it. Well, that's because everyone starts losing their shit. McCready, he's a natural born leader. I'll ask you kind of a 1A question on this is, what do you think MacReady's backstory is? He was in some war. He was in Vietnam, maybe, or something like that. Uh, Really? I was thinking definitely like Drifter. Uh, (laughs) Maybe he spent some time as a hobo. Yeah, Yeah, I would say he flew helicopters in Vietnam, and then he came back. He was lost for a bit, and somehow this is the only gig he could get. And so now he's down the Antarctic flying helicopters for them. (laughs) I think he's into the mob big time for... So like 50 large, and he's like, I better get my ass to Antarctica. My original thought on this before I did any research was, oh, okay, he's an you know, ex-Vietnam chopper pilot, right? He's been through a lot. He has you know, PTSD. He's a little bit screwed up. And then when I was doing the research, apparently that was the take that Kurt Russell had and that he gave to Carpenter was that exact situation. And that explains why McCready drank, uh, why he was awake throughout the night in some cases where he says he's a little a very light sleeper because he has insomnia and all the shit that he saw in war and why he's a natural leader because he's a soldier 
all that does kind of track. And I, I don't think he's in charge, Marcus. I think he takes charge. He's the guy because he sees everybody else just kind of fumbling around, stepping on their dicks, unable to really figure out what's going on, right? So uh, he jumps in and just handles the situation. Plus, honestly, as soon as you get the flamethrower, you're kind of in charge. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he who has the flamethrower. Especially if he did have some level of PTSD and he has a flamethrower on him at that point, I guarantee you the rest of the people on the station are going to be like, like, it's cool, it's cool. Let's, we'll fall in line. Yep. As we know, this movie begins in winter. First week of winter. Yeah, first week of winter. So my question was, yeah, does anybody actually stay in Antarctica during the winter? And the answer is that, yes, yes. there's actually up to like 5,000 scientists and researchers during the height of the summer, which is October through April, along with some 45,000 tourists visiting on cruise ships. But in the winter, the number drops to around 1,000 scientific staff only. So there's really, during the winter, there's only like about 1,000 people there. But the, the one thing about this, it is pretty much dark all winter long. So they just started winter. Where they are, which I think is somewhere like near Kempland, they would have just had a few hours of sunlight every day. Not even full sunlight, though. Not even full sunlight. Look, Murky. It looked like dusk or whatever. I don't think they quite captured that in the film, but no. I, it's okay. I'm, but it would be freezing cold. Yeah, yeah, at one yeah. point, McCready comes out and he's wearing just like a long sleeve shirt. Dude, <laughs> really? It's got to be so cold. No, McCready's a badass, dude. That's true. And, that, yeah. and that's the thing. A fun fact, it is a British Antarctic tradition to watch the thing on June 21st each year. <laughs> I know, that's yeah. pretty cool. <laughs> I don't think I'd want to watch it. If I was down in Antarctica, I'm not sure I'm watching that movie. Oh, I'd want to. Remember, we watched Jaws on the Beach in Santa Cruz, remember that? Yeah, but that's different. I don't know. <laughs> Nobody wanted to go night swimming after that. <laughs> if you found the alien, would you let it transform into its human form and then just try to communicate with it? No. no. It did not look like a friendly uh, thing that wants to talk. <laughs> well, okay, you're right. I wouldn't either. <laughs> okay. At any time it just starts sprouting legs out of its head or out of the side, you're pretty much like, okay, no, fuck it. We have to kill this thing. Yeah. Right. But I think in a different incarnation of this movie, if it's already taken human form, don't you want to talk to it and say, what do you want? Why are you here? But it almost seems like this alien, the thing is not really the same alien or is from the civilization that actually made the spaceship that traveled to Earth. It was an infection on that spaceship. Exactly. And that's, yeah. that's I think, more a lot more plausible. And that's, right. that's why there's no point in trying to communicate with this thing. Right. And by the way, the, one of the things that Carpenter said was that one of the things they were pursuing, and I'm not even sure if this comes out in the movie at all, is that sometimes the thing would create a replication of itself or of the person so exact that the person would not know that it was an alien, which I think is an interesting idea. So this was one of my big questions with the overall movie. It just seems too implausible that alien can take over the person and mimic them completely. The transformation is this very dramatic thing, changing and they're ripping their clothes and all this stuff is happening. Seems like you would notice. There's a pile of viscera in the corner where they're. Like, <laughs> yeah. Or like, how are they also getting changed back? Do they have like an extra set of clothes? And like, I'm not trying to like dive into the details and overanalyze it. That transformation seems like it would leave a mark and like, oh, here's this guy just standing next to me and he's been taken over. How does it know the mannerisms? How does it know the personality? How does it know the memories? That's the aspect I struggled a little bit with the movie. 
wait, how can you show all this stuff that's happening? And then the alien's taking him over, but you don't know it. And that's where I think the movie alien worked better because it wasn't completely taking over the person and controlling them, but it was just something inside of them that then burst out. So, yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, you think about like Invasion of the Body Snatchers where... The pod replication? Yeah, the pod replication and all that. But those people... You know that they've been taken. They're not even those people anymore. They just yeah, look exactly, like exactly. them. They're the pods, right? Interesting question, though. If it mimicked you perfectly where you now are infected by the thing and you don't even know that you're infected until you just go and infect somebody else... I find that really interesting because then really your only goal is to infect somebody else, but you still are essentially yourself. Mm -hmm. Then that means that if the whole world got infected, we'd still kind of all be ourselves. We just, someone's still commuting to work on Tuesday because they're the (laughs) thing. They're like, ah, shit, I gotta go. Yeah. (laughs) So now let's say the whole world's been infected and taken over, but we're all still ourselves. What's the point other than, this organism has taken over ourselves and well, I could, you know, sprout legs from my head if I wanted to. (laughs) I mean, if that were true, the world may have already been infected by some alien organism just like that. And we're all just who we are today. We have no idea that it's ever happened, but it happened some point in history. I think it kind of gets back to defining what is the thing, what is the essence of it. And I I would almost say that it's a a parasitical... It's like a virus just trying to survive? Like a a virus or something that's operating at the cellular level. So it might not even necessarily have grand ambitions or whatever. It's like a pandemic. Uh, It's... Yeah. Yeah. I'm just trying to survive. Mm -hmm. To me, there's not a lot of question as to why the spaceship is off course and drifting into the atmosphere of the Earth, right? It's because... The thing got loose on that ship and took over, caused some chaos or whatever, and that's how it starts. Like I never thought that the alien that came out that they found on the ice was the one that was driving the ship. I didn't think that at all, ever. Yeah, I think yeah. I thought that when I was a kid, but now looking at it, I'm like, oh, no, no, clearly that's not what's going on. That would make some sense then about trying to communicate with it then too. You wouldn't be able to. It's just a virus, and then that's when you discover what it is, it just like panics. That's where it does this wild transformations. And that's actually how it, how it behaves. Yeah. Like the defibrillation scene, defibrillation, whatever that word is, scene, <laughs> it's, re- it's reacting to being attacked, right? The blood test, it's reacting yeah. to being attacked or being discovered. To Colin's point, if you could have legs shoot out of your head at some point, why wouldn't you do that? This is like a party trick. <laughs> just to freak people out. Check this out. <laughs> It would liven up a business meeting. <laughs> I don't know if it would really impress anyone. I'm sure it would like horrify people. <laughs> Probably. But if everybody else is the thing, they'd be like, oh, let's just call and show an off again with his spider head. <laughs> it's like, a, hey, Bob, what happened? You, your, your arms are stumps. Oh, well, Colin was screwing around again yesterday. I will admit that there are three things that I think don't work in this movie. What are they? Do you have any ideas? Yes. Number one, Blair building his ship at the end. That's one of them. That's not terribly well explained. The timeline for him to do that is in question and other things around the materials and, you know, how did he actually hollow out that entire cave that's under the base or under his shack where he's being held? Does the thing somehow have the ability to manipulate materials at like a molecular level or something like that, right? Because you can take all the pieces you want off a helicopter, but you're not building a spaceship. So no, yeah. the spaceship that's in that cave, I mean... I'm sorry, like you're not you're not building a spaceship out of materials at hand. That was yeah. just like so implausible to me. That didn't work. But that is part of the original story, the novella, and also the thing from another planet. It's all in there. 
This one, when you see the in-progress version of the spacecraft, it's like, no, that thing's, that thing's not going anywhere. Right. He could just be a hobbyist, too. You never know. It looked like someone's <laughs> building a, like a remote control flying saucer. Or, or like a model Winging of the spaceship it. that he crashed on. Maybe that's all he's doing. He's like, I want to build a miniature <laughs> he's, he's of that. A, yeah, he's a hobbyist. Yeah, he's, well, he's just I just a, need something to do with my time. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Once he assimilates everybody, he's, he still has some creative urges he has to work out of his system. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that is one of the three things. Uh, the second one is in relation to McCready. Any thoughts? No, uh, actually, I don't. McCready's hat. <laughs> What's up with McCready's hat? <laughs> oh, it's I like a, McCready's I, hat. It's just nah. it's a bad choice of hat. You know what it is? It's the hat from uh, Silverado, Silverado that Payton gets when uh, yep, 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 it's yep, like yep. his temporary hat. And it's the shitty hat. And that's the, that, I think, is the hat that McCready's wearing. It just seems very impractical. I'm not sure why the brim is flipped up the way that it is. I'm not a fan. I think it's just a... It's just a weird character thing they're trying to do. It's a character quirk. He's just like, I wear this stupid hat. You know why? Right. Because I don't give a fuck. No, I understand. I mean, I, I understand that that's what they're doing for his character. I remember watching this movie for the first time. I'm like, that's a weird hat. <laughs> that's what... Well, the, the thing is, if he, if he was wearing like, like a Stetson, you'd be like... He's too badass. No, not... You'd just be like, okay, really, dude? You're obviously going to be the hero of our film, but... When you see him wearing that dumb hat, you're like, who the fuck is this guy? Yeah, but then it's like almost a Jack Burton character brings him to that almost comedic role. True. I would agree with Dave. Not needed. I didn't like it. Whatever. We can agree to disagree. I liked it. The the third thing that I think really doesn't work is uh, related to the blood test. And it has to do with where people are slicing open their hands to fill a Petri dish full of blood. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Who in their right mind is going to cut right through their center of their thumb versus like, say, maybe the back of your hand. Like, I'll do that, right? Because I'm going to need my thumb to be able to pick things up for quite a while. <laughs> That's a seven, eight stitch situation, right? And then it shows one other guy, he decides to cut under his nail. <laughs> what are you doing, man? <laughs> I thought that the blood cutting situation was a, they could find better options. <laughs> that was my thought there. At least a pinky, right? It's noticeable. I mean, it's a cool effect. You can easily make a thumb and like slice through the thumb. So it's just like movie trope. It's like, uh, oh, we're going to be blood brothers. So I'm going to like take a knife and I'm going to slice my entire palm. Right. You know, like, <laughs> no, you're not going to do that. We can just jump into the movie and talk about a few key scenes, things we liked or things we thought that were interesting. So I do think that this is a really interesting opening, kind of like Close Encounters, by the way, where you have the planes and there's some mystery. All of a sudden, there's a helicopter that's racing across a landscape. It's actually very beautiful, by the way. You know, the snow fields and all that, the way that it's shot, I think it's, it looks really great. Some dude leaning out a, the window of a helicopter trying to kill a dog. I think it's a great opening. I just think that the hook, you're like, what the hell's going on here? And you're right into the movie. So I think it works really well. I'd agree with you. It reminded me of Memento a little bit. You just jump right into the movie. The one thing I dislike about it, though, is the guy was a terrible shot. And as we all know, that Norway is the winningest gold medalist in biathlon. They've won mm -hmm. seven gold medals in the biathlon, <laughs> uh, the most in history. <laughs> I think the Norwegians could have got the dog. I think it's just terrible. I do think it's, he's a pretty bad shot, actually. I always wondered why Norway has a, a scientific post in Antarctica. I mean... Let's just go north. Their whole country is basically like <laughs> Arctica. So like, why do they need to go to Antarctica? We need some new fresh snow. <laughs> Bunch of Norwegians are sitting around. They're like, how do we find something a little colder? <laughs> <laughs> By the way, speaking of Norwegians, I, you know, you see like the word on the helicopter, Norge. And I've always just thought it was pronounced Norge. And then I was like, is it really pronounced Norge? So I looked it up. It's actually Norge. Good for you for doing the deep research. It makes a lot more sense now. Norge. 
I have one other observation about the opening scene is that when the Norwegian shows up and he's got the gun, I, by the way, I do love the moment where he's trying to kill the dog and everybody dives to the ground and he just ignores the people and walks past. He's going after the dog. I think that that's kind of a fun moment because they're like, what the fuck is going on? Like, this guy is nuts. Yeah. What I really love about that scene is that at no point when all the chaos is going on, does McCready ever drop the scotch bottle? So he's got that <laughs> thing in his hand the entire time. That's a man who's dedicated to his alcohol. <laughs> Well, there's really only one thing to do when you're stuck for three months of winter in Antarctica with a bunch of guys, and it's basically drink. And taped game shows. <laughs> like, well, the fact that they're like watching the same episode of The, the, what is it, the, the, Price, the Price is, is right, right over and over, <laughs> I think I'm going to go up in my hut and drink. Right, yeah. <laughs> you could have played chess, but McCready fucked it up for everybody on that one. So <laughs> He destroyed yeah. the computer. By the way, I, I just, I really loved that old PC chess game. I mean, it was just fun to see that well one thing i loved about the scene where they're watching the price is right is the old vcr it's one of those vcr that has the faux wood panel along on it remember that did you oh, yes. have one of those yeah, of course <laughs> it's classy you know what would really make this electronic device look great some faux wood paneling <laughs> yeah <laughs> i think that was our first vcr a top loader as i recall i believe so the top loader yes oh, yeah. the old top loader when gary shoots the norwegian right through the eye when he falls to the ground he lets out like a, a big death spasm. And I thought that was just a, like a little nice touch. So you like Nor- Norwegian death spasms? Yes. That would be a good... Uh, I was say, it sounds like a band name. B- yeah, I was going <laughs> say a great band name, actually. <laughs> Norwegian death spasm is ripping up the charts right now. So they decide they're going to take the trip out to the Norwegian camp. They do find some interesting stuff out there. Colin, I think you had a, a question. Yeah. So when they get there, you know, they find this guy who's sitting in a chair completely frozen and his throat is cut. In fact, he's almost de- decapitated. Right. It's so deep. And then there's like blood running down his arm that's just frozen. Like, did he cut his own throat? Like, what do we think happened there? Yeah. So I was kind of wondering if maybe he sliced his own wrist and then maybe somebody came up and just to apply the uh, coup de grace when it comes to the uh, throat. I'm not really sure mm-hmm. because he could cut his own wrists, but he definitely couldn't. Because I thought it, I thought it initially when you looked at it, it was a suicide scene for the way the blood was coming out of his wrist. Maybe he committed suicide and then OJ showed up and did the rest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a, a Bronco slash snowmobile chase across the Arctic plains. <laughs> An interesting production note, the Norwegian camp was actually just the American camp. And after they burned it, they used yep. that to film the uh, Norwegian camp. Yeah, that's, that's so, actually pretty cool. And they built that whole camp in British Columbia. And they built yeah. the camp during summer, knowing that the winter was coming in. By the time they got up there to do the filming, the, the road was up. snowed in. There was all, oh, it, it took them like, there's all kinds of chaos. For example, all the actors that were coming in to do filming up there, they were on a Greyhound bus that got stuck in the snow. And so they all had to get out and push the bus to try to oh, get man. it back on the road. <laughs> so wow. all these guys that were just doing what they needed to do for the movie. So that's pretty cool. One of the things that I thought was interesting or kind of silly, honestly, is they get a video with what they say. There's a video recording unit and they come back and there's nine hours of tapes. right? And they're looking at them and see the explorers going out to find the ship. And after about 30 seconds, uh, I forget... If, if it's Palmer, I can't who it is, but he says, oh, we're not going to, we can't learn anything from this. They have nine hours of footage and they've looked at two minutes of it. They're like, oh, we can't learn anything. The whole base <laughs> was destroyed. Here's a video log, but we shouldn't watch it. So I just thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, that didn't make any sense. I, I thought the same thing. Yeah, I'm like, well, maybe you should spend a little time watching because you never know. You might find something there. You're not getting nine hours on one tape though. No, there was, there was a stack of tapes. So that part oh, checks okay. out actually. Yeah. 
I wonder how many of those tapes were not scientific, if you know what I mean. <laughs> the mark, scientific research. <laughs> Do not want. <laughs> what did you guys find at the, at the station? Well, we found a large block of ice, the place was exploded, and a whole bunch of porn. <laughs> <laughs> those Norwegians are just some crazy shit. <laughs> I do like when they walked into the, the big room and there is this huge block of ice sitting there with this ominous looking cutout in it. The mystery is really interesting. So much of the, of the set design and the production design and the matte painting and the miniature work in this film is also really quite impressive. I just think this movie is great looking all the way through. Like, I'm, There's not a single scene in this movie where I look at it and I'm like, oh, that looks fake or stupid. I just, I don't see that. Including the, um, when they're looking at the VCR, all the scientists like standing around in the huge circle defining oh, yeah. the border of this spaceship that is so big. So yeah, really well done. Something that when I watched the 2011 version, very different because you actually see the whole ship underneath the ice. To Marcus's point, they didn't leave enough to the imagination there. The found footage component is actually really well done. It's, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's very, very believable when you're the, watching the it. The found footage, exactly. Yeah. And it really is found footage. Moving along a little bit, one thing that I think is interesting is when they have to put the dog in the kennel, just that very first effect that happens where the dog's head basically splits into four and kind of you know, splits back. Like a banana peel. Like, yeah, yeah, like a banana peel. I remember the first time I was like, whoa, like that's, you know, that's a pretty crazy gore effect. I'm like, okay, we, we could be in for something here. You see all the other stuff that's going on in the kennel with the, like the, the things like squirting one dog at one point. You know, there's oh, just like just goop everywhere. And dogs are being assimilated. Everywhere. It's just, yeah. it's gross, but in a great way. And it's really, really well done. <laughs> oh, and I don't know how they got the dogs to sit for that, like to be like sprayed and how, but really cool. Very, very, very cool. Dan Winston's team came in and did most of that sequence inside the kennel because, uh, you know, Rob Bottin was getting a little bit overwhelmed. If I didn't mention, but he, he slept on the Universal lot for the entire year that he was working on this movie and then had to check himself into the hospital due to exhaustion. Like well, he worked yeah. seven days a week for a year and, and slept on the lot. That's how dedicated he was to this movie. So again, just a crazy craftsman. Wow. There's a sequence where all of a sudden it looks like a flower is kind of coming out, right? It sort of comes out of one of the dog's mouth and unfolds and it's very flowery looking. But when you look at that closely, it's actually a bunch of dog tongues and dog teeth that are actually embedded mm. in the tongues. So that's what's actually coming out. Is It's a flower shape of a whole bunch of dog tongues that are melded together. I didn't realize that until I did reading on this movie. That's crazy. I also really like the sound design. It's like there's this background noise. It's insect-like, right? It's kind exactly. Of a, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Very creepy. When they burn the dogs, it's pretty funny because Colin and I had the exact same observation in terms of Dr. Blair when he starts <laughs> cutting into the dogs. And I think he's losing his mind a little bit, so that's what's happening. But it really does sound <laughs> like he's having an orgasm. It really does. <laughs> if you ever want to hear Wilford Brimley <laughs> have an orgasm. <laughs> and, and who doesn't? Yeah, and who doesn't? Watch the thing. Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, my God. Oh. 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 <laughs> oh my god, it's so good. Oh god. Oh. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
good old uh, Dr. Blair. So you have a note about computer animation? Yeah, very dated. Yes, I, I really love the... First of all, they have this software that they can just spin up on their floppy disk drives and <laughs> uh, immediately start doing some computer cell animation. Pretty amazing stuff for the time, or, or extremely dated. I don't know exactly what program they used for that, but it was, um, wow. Maybe Windows was a computer programmer, I'm not sure. They ran the probabilities and the how long it's to reach all civilization. Where did these models come from? I think they were like programming in like PC DOS 1.1. I have no idea like how they got to this. It was kind of interesting. At least you get the information, which is at, like at that rate. Yeah, it's a creative way to deliver some exposition as to the threat of the thing. That's really what it is. Yeah, I think at the time it seemed very plausible, you know, back in 1982. No, not so much. I mean, yes, they were scientists, but... Blair is breaking out his Q basic book. How did, how did I do this again? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine like the, uh, this gets back to the supply list, the request list they send to the mainland. It's like, we need some flamethrowers, a couple cases of scotch, and we need a program that will tell us how long until the entire world is overrun by aliens. Flamethrowers? Maybe we should find out what's going on up there. We, we need to call in an airstrike. <laughs> yeah. uh, so 27,000 hours is how long it would take for the whole world. Just over uh, three, three years. years. Yeah. Yep. I did the math too. I was curious. Moving on, things start to fall apart. People are going through the transformations. They, they burn a couple people. McCready, you see him start to not go crazy per se, but he has a little bit, like the edge starts ratcheting up with McCready and that's, that's a lot of fun, right? So when McCready comes back, after, I think it was Nalls cuts him loose when they're out in the uh, storm because he thinks that McCready's been taken over. And then McCready comes back in. That's one of my favorite moments of the movie because Kurt Russell does a great job of delivering the crazy eyes in that scene. He's like, ah, I'm a real light sleeper child. <laughs> <You know? That's>, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and he still has the flamethrower, right? So, and if you assume that he has PTSD and maybe he's been drinking, I bet the rest of those guys are sitting there kind of quietly, calmly trying not to agitate McCready at that point. Oh, very true. Um, I did have a couple of questions about that. So right before all the blood in the refrigerator inside the blood that they had on hand, it's all been like slashed. Destroyed. And it's, mm-hmm. yeah. like, why exactly did someone do that? Was it because it could be used to mimic the other crew or was it, they were trying to just thwart a test of real blood against the, the alien blood. Yeah. They didn't want to have the, the blood to be able to uh, create the test. I assume that they needed the blood packs to help them create the test to mm. determine which one the alien blood is. Okay. Or not. So there was more like, oh, let's look at the like the blood type or whatever, see, compare that. Yeah, exactly, else. exactly. Instead, they just come up with a jury rigged test, which is hot needle. Yeah, hot needle. Yeah. And, but then they burned it all, right? They, they, they took it outside and burned it all. Oh, they burned the blood. Yeah. They, yeah. they, they burned the blood packs. Yeah. Is that because they thought it might be contaminated? Maybe it was just they were like, okay, just getting rid of all the, the tissue. Mm-hmm. Residue, not sure. <clears throat> okay. What's curious is, uh, to this day, who actually, who, who got to the blood? I don't know. The carpenter has never commented on this issue. As far as I know, if he was asked to do so, he would most certainly say, I don't know, as he <laughs> does in response to pretty much every question about the movie. Uh, I don't know. I, right. I was curious to know if you like sat there and went through the script with a real fine tooth comb, if you could figure it out, but uh, I don't know. I also happen to like McCready's speech in front of the rest of the crew outside. I know I'm human. you were all these things then you just attack me right now so some of you are still human 
This thing doesn't want to show itself. It wants to hide inside an imitation. It'll fight if it has to, but it's vulnerable out in the open. If it takes us over, then it has no more enemies. Nobody left to kill it. And then it's one. That's Marcus where you see McCready kind of assuming the mantle of leadership, right? Even if he doesn't necessarily want it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. He takes over. But he's also doing it partially to keep himself alive. I don't know that McCready's running back into the buildings to get a lot of people. I'm not sure he's that kind of guy. <laughs> Could go either way. No, he's going to save his own skin first. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say, the blood test scene is probably, I think we've mentioned it earlier, definitely the, the best scene in the movie. The tension it builds, having everyone tied up there, and like each time they're sticking a needle into the blood, what's going to happen when it does find the uh, the alien blood. Good jump scare. Yeah, they do a nice moment of misdirection where you assume it's like it's not going to be that moment, and then the blood jumps out of the Petri dish, and yeah. the shaking starts. And the fact that you have the two guys tied to the same couch... As them. <laughs> exactly, and, exactly. And they're trying they're to, they're trying to get off. And, <laughs> and they're just like freaking out. Their tool of choice to kill the, the monster is like a flamethrower. Flame tied up right next to him. You're like, don't flame him right now. Wait. I love that scene. I love how it builds tension. It's definitely pre-HIV in terms of it being 82 because you see one guy grab the scalpel and he cuts his finger and then he wipes it on his pants and then he, and the second guy grabs it and cuts his finger. In today's world, this and COVID, there's going to be a little disinfectant that occurs between uh, the uh, usage of the scalpel, I'm thinking. Uh, yeah. Sure. So it's just one of those weird things where you're like, oh, that's interesting. This is where the creature grows the jaws out of the top of its head and then just picks up windows and puts it right into its jaws. So that's a great moment. That is just amazing. What is it? Like his head splits open and, yeah. and turns into jaws. Jaws. Windows' his entire head just gets clamped down. That was, and then like, like pulled up into the air. And oh man, that, that was nuts. I don't know which one's like better, that or, um, or doing the, um, the, the spider. The, yeah, doing the, the defib and then having your arms just like go into the chest cavity and just get bitten off by these jaws. I, mean, <laughs> I remember seeing that the first time I saw that. I think I just flipped out. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> Well, you know, what was awesome is, uh, so we, we sat down to watch this and I actually watched it last night with just me and me and my, my wife and my daughter. So that was tons of fun. And we sat down on the couch and Mia's like, okay, well, I'll watch this, but I don't really like jump scares. Are there any jump scares in this movie? And I'm like, no, there aren't really any jump scares in this movie. And then oh, I'm sitting there on the couch and I'm watching out of my peripheral vision when we get to the, the, the defibrillation scene. And I'm like, here it comes. <laughs> sure enough, like, her, her whole body like <laughs> on the couch. I got some satisfaction for that. She was, uh, she, what she told me was that she started watching me when we were watching Jaws together when she was a lot younger. She was, you know, nine or 10 or whatever. And so she would look to see if I was looking at her when, <laughs> as, it, as the movie was coming along to figure out if there was going to be a jump scare. She really nailed me when I was in Jaws when the head comes out of the boat. Yeah, yeah. That was the moment where I was giving a little bit too much away by staring at her. That's a signal. Yeah, so if I want to really scare her, if I we're watching a movie, I can't look at her. That's that's the realization <laughs> there. And by the way, I did record a quick reaction pod with her. Her main take on the movie the entire way through was she was convinced that it, McCready was going to be the thing at the end. Mm. And so she kept taking notes along the way because she thought, for example, like McCready puts ice in his drink in the beginning. And then when he drinks later, he's not using ice. Little things like that that I never really even noticed. She, she was right based on the original script, honestly, which is kind of funny, but not the way that it was filmed. Right. And hmm. I, I had never considered that before. But actually, after watching 
the 2011 version, they pointed out that the thing couldn't assimilate metal that was in your body. They found fillings on the floor. Oh, that's interesting. You can't do inorganic matter. Right. You can't do uh, inorganic matter. And so I was looking at the end to see when it's just Childs and uh, McCready. Did Childs have his earring? And apparently he did still have his earring. Now, I don't think this is like established canon in this movie. In 82. Yeah, yeah. But I thought it was interesting. Two other quick notes on the special effects. So on the the work that they did with the uh, the defib, you know, where he puts his hands in and the hands are bitten off. It's actually really interesting because you can read about how they made the arms out of gelatin. They built like fake veins that had blood in them and all that kind of stuff. And then what they did was they actually found an actor or somebody that had had his arm severed in an industrial machining accident. Mm. So when you see Blair, when he pulls back, they built a prosthetic to make the guy look like Blair but he really did not have arms, and that's how they achieved that effect, which I thought was pretty interesting. <laughs> um, and then one other thing about the, the spider effect, so they were trying to figure out how to get the head to stretch off the table and have the goop that would stretch, and then all of a sudden the head would snap off. And it took them 10 or 11 hours to rig it up, and they were using all this stuff. Rob Botin describes it as they had lacquer and bubble gum and rubber and all this melted plastic in there, and what it was doing was it was creating fumes that were actually filling up the space. And then as as they were getting ready to film, uh, Carpenter said, hold on a second, there needs to be some fire in the shot because this is right after McCready uses the flamethrower. Johnny says, roll camera. Right, so they roll camera. Right, and he goes, all right, light the fire bar. Guy turns on the gas, you know, stuff's coming out. And the guy's up there with a, you know, like a a lighter, you know, and he's and finally, it ignites, right? And the whole effect, the whole Hallahan, you know, replica body explodes. The whole room goes into this huge fireball with the whole crew sitting in it, right? Because this is a small set. And when the fire clears, everybody's sitting there like in a cartoon, you know, with their faces black, but, you know, nobody had black faces, but they were all going, you like this? And I'm staring down at the at the body, and I'm in shock. And so they had, they had set up for the... Uh... <laughs> So they had set up for the head effect and there were so many fumes in there. So Rob Bottin describes it as like <clears throat> people are stunned and laying on the ground. And he said it was like the cartoon where you have like the, the you know, the soot covering your face because you just had something explode in your hands. <laughs> oh, oh my God. God. And not only that, but, but they had to spend another 10 or 12 hours setting up the shot. And Carpenter said they only had that night to do it. So they had to either rally the whole team to do it again right then and there, or they were going to not have that effect. And so luckily they pressed on because... The spider head has to be probably the iconic image from this movie, I would assume, from a special effects standpoint. And then when they reshot it, somebody open a window, damn it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's a, hopefully a, a little bit more of a safety approach. Although that's another thing that made all those guys mad geniuses back in the day. Tom Savini, for example, when he made Maniac, he went out there and uh, he was firing real shotguns into cars just on the street because they needed to get these shot. So just guerrilla filmmaking, just kids having fun. At the end, McCready obviously going nuts. He's running around and blowing things up. I love the, yeah, fuck it, we're all going down with the ship kind of suicide, save humanity angle I think is pretty good. The, at the end, though, you have Childs and McCready that are sitting there, and you can read about this all over the place. Sure enough, right, McCready, his breath you can see quite clearly. Childs, you can't see much of anything in terms of the breath that's coming out. People have hypothesized that that was done intentionally because Childs is a thing and McCready is not. However, Carpenter says that that wasn't the case at all. And Dean Kundi backs him up on it and says it was just a trick of the light in terms of the way they had the lighting set up. So it has nothing. It was not intentional at all. 
just an interesting factoid of something that a lot of people glommed onto when it was never intended. If you want to make any of them the thing at the end, you're going to do something that gives a pretty big clue to the audience that they're the thing. Yeah, you wouldn't make it that subtle. Right. And there's there would be no reason for any one of them to hesitate to assimilate the other one in that situation. Right. That to me proves that they're both human. That's my stance on it. Carpenter even recently, I think in an interview in 2022, he said, oh, like we left the movie. They were both alive. Presumably they would both be alive today. So if we do want to do a sequel, we can have them both. I felt like the finale with um, the thing at the end was a bit anticlimactic because, oh, it was just like underground and you don't really see much. I think maybe like a, like a big, large tentacle, right? But that's about yeah. it. And then I read that they basically either ran out of time or money and they couldn't really do what they had intended to do. And they had just, just had to do that to like sort of wrap it up. I'm actually kind of happy that it doesn't devolve into sort of this predator-like showdown between McCready and the thing. Yeah, that would it, would it would sell out the rest of the movie in terms of this idea of it being a little bit more quote-unquote realistic, right? Or a bunch of guys that are just making the best of the situation. It's like McCready is not some superhero or anything like that. One thing I do like about that final scene, though, I, I do like how the tentacle grabs the dynamite thing and pulls it under, just the effect of that, like the, he wraps it around it and then pulls it. So mm-hmm. I just think that there yeah. are some pretty interesting special effects that are still happening in that scene. Um, the other thing I, that I do think is interesting is a lot of that underground sequence at the end was actually done using miniatures. So they filmed a bunch of uh, miniatures for the inside the cave. And so, and you can't really tell when you look at it. I mean, I, I think, you know, again, the miniature work, the map painting, all of it, I just think is, it comes together brilliantly. All right. Well, Colin, let me ask you, what did you learn from this movie? I learned that you should always think twice before using defibrillator paddles on someone. <laughs> uh, well, I learned that Norwegians are not really as good of a shot as I thought they would be based on their Olympic history. Marcus? True. I learned the somewhat obvious, if you come across a frozen alien, just leave it alone. <laughs> <You don't, laughs> just leave it alone. Just, maybe. just walk Just walk away. Just walk away. Walk, walk away. Actually, you know what's funny about that is I, that was what, I did have that as one question, which is, if you assume that these guys find a spaceship in the ice, how come nobody calls back to their home country to say, holy shit, we found a spaceship? Well, they were. Now, now they, it could be radio, winter. Like uh, it's like, uh, yeah. uh, uh, Windows couldn't get anyone on the radio. So they were trying to do that. Okay. Now, in the 2011 movie, they clearly were like, oh, fuck that. Like, we're going to make yeah, the, that guy wanted the, uh, the biggest scientific, scientific discovery. Yeah. discovery. And then clearly they were not up to the task of okay. doing this. Okay. Yeah. In 2011, they, they were planning, because like, she didn't even want them to uh, drill into it, which is what ended up releasing the uh, the alien in the oh, first okay. place. Well, all right. And that's that's the really the, the big dumb scientist moment in that yeah. movie. Like, oh, fuck it. Let's just drill into this thing. Yeah. Yeah. Let's just throw out all precaution. And- it's kind of like finding a life form on a cave on a distant planet and then taking off your helmet off. and yeah. talking sweetly to it. <laughs> yes, exactly. That is exactly what it is like. Shout out to Prometheus. All right, well, uh, closing thoughts and letter grade. Colin? I mean, look, I, I just, I really love this movie. I think it's uh, it's atmospheric. It's great. It's got great creature effects. Uh, it's got a great lead character in Kurt Russell and a really good supporting cast. Feelings of, you know, the the paranoia. And it's a good movie. It's a really good movie. It's v- uh, probably one of the best sci-fi horror movies, so... Um, I give it an A minus. Marcus. I enjoyed the movie. I did like it. The one thing that I disliked 
was the the creature effects. That was not for me. Not to say that they were bad. It was just very kind of gross, disturbing, grotesque. I think if I was younger and I saw the movie, I'd appreciate it more. It's just very early 80s dated creature effects. That aspect of it is amazing, but it's not for me. But the rest of the film, I think, is excellent. The isolation of them in Antarctica, this group of men not trusting each other and have to suss out who is this alien, who's it taken over, and and just all of that, I think, is really well done. The atmosphere, the mood, the music, all of that just really well-made horror movie. I think that's where John Carpenter does best. I could have done with less less creatures, but uh, letter grade, I'll give it a... I'll give it middle-of-the-road B for me. All right, well, uh, it's one of my favorite 20 films of all time. I'll give it an A+. And I like it for the reasons that Marcus does not. Growing up a horror junkie, this was, you know, one of the all-time great gore fests. And uh, I loved it for that reason. I think that the craftsmanship that's on display, I think, you know, Rob Bottin, his team, Stan Winston, the work that he did in the dog kennel, I just think it's amazing. And so, and, and I have a deep appreciation for the practical effects side of it. I just, cause I grew up on with that type of horror. So all the CGI stuff that I see today, uh, a lot of times I'm underwhelmed and I just, the, the fluidity of the CGI just doesn't work for me. So I'd rather see something that doesn't look as good. That is a practical effect versus some of the shit that, uh, that you see with the CGI. Um, and I just think that the tone of this movie, I love the tone. I love the isolation. And I really do think that this is, arguably John Carpenter's best film. It's not my favorite John Carpenter film, but I just think that the level of complexity, painting, set design, and all that kind of stuff, I just think that it's it's very impressive filmmaking. I, d- I really do think that. And so uh, if I didn't give it a grade already, it's an A-plus for me because that's what this movie is. It's, a, it's an all-timer classic, and I love it. So this is an 8.2 on IMDb. What is your guess for Halloween's rating? Halloween, I would say maybe it's an 8.0 if the thing is an 8.2. That's what I'd say. Yeah, I think it's lower. Yeah, like 7.9. 7.7. Oh, interesting. I was surprised by that. What is Big Trouble in Little China since you're there out of curiosity? It's probably, my guess would be, so guess first, I would guess like a, a low 7 would be my guess. Oh, I, w- I would even say lower than that. I was going to say like 6.6. Colin, you got a guess? Uh, 6.8. Right, 7.2. Okay, well, that's good. That's respectable. Yeah. Escape from New York is 7-1. It's the cult movies, too, that get better ratings. Not necessarily because it's popular, but more for like the people it's popular with. By the way, for those of you listening and playing at home, you, too, can jump on the <laughs> internet and look at our <laughs> the IMDb movie scores <laughs> at the same time we're doing it. It's the uh, real DMC movie home game. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, it's probably a good place to leave it. Hope you enjoyed our conversation about The Thing and lots of conversation about amazing practical effects. I think we all would recommend it. Mark is a little less than Colin and I, but it's worth seeing if you've never seen it. If you haven't seen it, then why did you listen to this podcast? I'm not sure, but hope you enjoyed it anyways. All right, and with that, this is The Real DMC Podcast signing off. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. You gotta be fucking kidding Okay. Excuse you. Excuse me. There goes the, there goes the intro or the outro. I think that was coming out of you, so that's more of an outro. <laughs> it was definitely coming out. <laughs> Colin, we don't need any other material from you, though, from a coming out of your body right. orifices. I'm done for the night. Thank you. All right. Thank you. That's Colin Boyd signing off. 
whenever you gentlemen find the time, I'd rather not spend the rest of this winter tied to this fucking chair. <laughs> yeah, I just love that. I think it might be couch though, not chair. Oh, oh man, right. just it. it's couch. I just ruined yeah. it. I'll have to do it again. Yeah, I'm sure Emily would appreciate that. Yes, <laughs> that's all right. We, we were there in spirit.